Epilogue All along the hill, the fishermen of ten towns moved along their fallen enemies, looting the barbarians of what small wealth they possessed, and putting the sword to the unfortunate ones who were not quite dead. Yet, amid the carnage of the bloody scene, a finger of mercy was to be found. A man from Goodmead rolled the limp form of an unconscious young barbarian over onto its back, preparing to finish the job with his dagger. Bruner came upon them then, and, recognizing the youth as the standard bearer who had dented his helmet, stayed the fisherman's thrust. "'Don't kill him! He's nothing but a boy, and he can't have known truly what he and his people did.' "'Bah!' huffed the fisherman." What mercy would these dogs have shown to our children, I ask you? He's half in the grave anyway. Still, I ask you to let him be, Bruner growled, his axe bouncing impatiently against his shoulder. In fact, I insist. The fisherman returned the dwarf's scowl, but he had witnessed Bruner's proficiency in battle and thought better of pushing at him too far. With a disgusted sigh, he headed off toward the hill to find less protected victims. The boys stirred on the grass and moaned, "'So, you've got a bit of life in you yet,' said Brunner. He knelt beside the lad's head and lifted it by the hair to meet his eyes. "'Hear me well, boy. I saved your life here. Why, I'm not quite known. But don't you think you've been pardoned by the people of Ten Towns?' I want you to see the misery your people have brung. Maybe killing's in your blood, and if it is, then let the fisherman's blade end you here and now. But I'm feeling there's more to you, and you'll have time to show me right. You're to serve me and me people in our minds for five years and a day to prove yourself worthy of life and freedom. Bruno saw that the youth had slumped back into unconsciousness. Bah, never mind, he muttered. You'll hear me well before all's done, be sure of that. He moved to drop the head back to the grass, but laid it down gently instead. Onlookers to the spectacle of the gruff dwarf showing kindness to the barbarian youth were indeed startled, but none could guess the implications of what they'd witnessed. Bruner himself for all of his assumptions of this barbarian's character, could not have foreseen that this boy, Wolfgar, would grow into the man who would reshape this harsh region of the tundra. Far to the south, in a wide pass among the towering peaks of the spine of the world, Akar Castle languished in the soft life that Krishinabon had provided for him. His goblin slaves had captured yet another female from a merchant caravan for him to play with, but now something else had caught his eye. Smoke rising into the empty sky from the direction of Ten Towns. Barbarians, Kessel guessed. He'd heard rumors that the tribes were gathering when he and the wizards from Luskin had been visiting East Haven. But it didn't matter to him, and why should it? He had all that he ever needed right here in Chrysal Tirith, and had no desire to travel anywhere else. No desires that were wrought on his own will, that is. Krenshinibon was a relic that was truly alive in its magic, and part of its life was the desire to conquer and command. The crystal shard was not content with an existence in a desolate mountain range where the only servants were lonely goblins. It wanted more. It wanted power. 
Kessel's own subconscious recollections of ten towns, when he spotted the column of smoke, had stirred the relic's hunger, so it now used the same empathetic power of suggestion on Kessel. A sudden image grasped at the wizard's deepest needs. He saw himself seated on a throne in Bryn Shander, immeasurably wealthy and respected by all in his court. He imagined the response from the host tower of the Arcane in Luskin when the mages there, especially Eldalok and Dendabar, learned of Akar Kessel, lord of ten towns and ruler of all Icewind Dale. Would they offer him a robe in their puny order then? Despite Kessel's true enjoyment of the leisurely existence he had found, the thought appealed to him. He let his mind continue through the fantasy, exploring the paths that he might take to accomplish such an ambitious goal. He ruled out trying to dominate the fisher folk, as he dominated the goblin tribe, for even the least intelligent of the goblins had held out against his imposing will for quite a long time. And when any of these had gotten away from the immediate area of the tower, they regained their ability to determine their own actions, and had fled into the mountains. No, simple domination would not work against humans. Kessel pondered using the power that he felt pulsing through the structure of Krishal Tirith, destructive forces beyond anything he'd ever heard of, even in the host tower. This would help, but it would not be enough. Even the strength of Krishinaban was limited, requiring lengths of time under the sun to gather new power to replace expended energy. Furthermore, in Ten Towns there were too many people too widely scattered to be corralled by a single sphere of influence. And Kessel didn't want to destroy them all. Goblins were convenient, but wizards longed to have humans bowing before him, real men like the ones who had persecuted him for all of his life. For all of his life before, he had gained the shard. His ponderings eventually led him inevitably down the same line of reasoning. He would need an army. He considered the goblins he presently commanded. Fanatically devoted to his every wish, they would, in fact several had, gladly die for him. Yet even they weren't nearly numerous enough to engulf the wide region of the Three Lakes with any semblance of strength. And then an evil thought, again covertly insinuated into his will by the crystal shard, came upon the wizard. How many holes and caves, Kessel cried aloud, are there in this vast and rugged mountain range? And how many goblins, ogres, even trolls and giants do they harbor? The beginnings of a devious vision took shape in his mind. He saw himself at the head of a huge goblin and giant army sweeping across the plains, unstoppable and irresistible. How he would make the men tremble. He lay back on a soft pillow and called for the new harem girl. He had another game in mind one that had also come to him in a strange dream. It called for her to beg and whimper, and finally, to die. The wizard decided, though, that he would certainly consider the possibilities of lordship over ten towns that had opened wide before him. But there was no need to hurry. He had time. The goblins could always find him another plaything. Crenshinabon, too, seemed to be at peace. It had placed the seed within Kessel's mind— a seed that it knew would germinate into a plan of conquest. But, like Kessel, the relic had no need for haste. The crystal shard had waited ten thousand years to return to life and see this opportunity of power flicker again. It could wait a few more.
The Crystal Shard, Book 2. Wolfgar. Tradition. The very sound of the word invokes a sense of gravity and solemnity. Tradition. Sauzchak in the drow language. And there, too, as in every language that I've ever heard, the word rolls off of one's tongue with a tremendous weight and power. Tradition. It is the root of who we are, the link to our heritage, the reminder that we, as a people, if not individually, will span the ages. To many people and many societies, tradition is the source of structure and of law, the abiding fact of identity that denies the contrary claims of the outlaw or the misbehavior of the rogue. It is that echoing sound deep in our hearts and our minds and our souls that remind us of who we are by reinforcing who we were. To many, it is even more than the law. It is the religion guiding faith as it guides morality and society. To many, tradition is a god itself, the ancient rituals and the holy texts scribbled on unreadable parchments yellowed with age or chiseled into eternal rocks. To many, tradition is all. Personally, I view it as a double-edged sword, and one that can cut even more deeply in the way of error. I saw the workings of tradition in Menzabaranzan, the ritualistic sacrifice of the third male child, which was almost my own fate, the workings of the three drow schools. Tradition justified my sister's advances toward me in the graduation of Mele Maj Thare, and denied me any claims against that wretched ceremony. Tradition holds the matrons in power, limiting the ascent of any males. Even the vicious wars of Menzabaranzan's house against house are rooted in tradition, are justified because that is the way it has always been. Such failings are not exclusive to the drow. Often I sit on the northern face of Kelvin's Carn, looking out over the empty tundra and the twinkling lights of the campfires in the vast barbarian encampments. There, too, is a people wholly consumed by tradition, a people clinging to ancient codes and ways that once allowed them to survive as a society in an inhospitable land, but that now hinder them as much as more than helps them. The barbarians of Icewind Dale follow the caribou herd from one end of the dale to the other. In days long past, that was the only way they could survive up here. But how much easier might their existence be now if they only traded with the folk of ten towns, offering pelts and good meat in exchange for stronger materials brought up from the south, so they might construct more permanent homes for themselves? In days long past, before any real civilizations crept this far to the north, the barbarians refused to speak with, or even to accept, anyone else within Icewind Dale the various tribes often joining for the sole purpose of driving out intruders. In those past times, any newcomers would inevitably become rivals for the meager food and other scarce supplies, and so such xenophobia was necessary for basic survival. The folk of Ten Towns, with their advanced fishing techniques and their rich trade with Luskin, are not rivals of the barbarians. Most have never even eaten venison, I would guess, and yet... Tradition demands of the barbarians that they do not make friends with these folk, and indeed, often war upon them. Tradition. What gravity indeed does that word impart? What power it wields, as it roots us and grounds us and gives us hope for who we are because of who we were, 
so it also wreaks destruction and denies change. I would never pretend to understand another people well enough to demand that they change their traditions, yet how foolish it seems to me to hold fast and unyieldingly to those mores and ways without regard for any changes that have taken place in the world about us. For that world is a changing place, moved by advancements in technology and magic, by the rise and fall of populations, even by the blending of races as in the half-elf communities. The world is not static. And if the roots of our perceptions, traditions, hold static, then we are doomed, I say, into destructive dogma. Then we fall upon the darker blade of that double-edged sword. Drizzt Duarden Chapter 9 No More a Boy Regis stretched out lazily against his favorite tree and enjoyed a drawn-out yawn his cherubic dimples beaming in the bright ray of sunlight that somehow found its way to him through the thickly packed branches. His fishing pole stood poised beside him, though its hook had long since been cleaned of any bait. Regis rarely caught any fish, but he prided himself on never wasting more than one worm. He'd come out here every day since his return to Lonelywood. He wintered in Bryn Shander now, enjoying the company of his good friend Cassius. The city on the hill didn't compare to Calumport, but the palace of its spokesman was the closest thing to luxury in all of Icewind Dale. Regis thought himself quite clever for persuading Cassius to invite him to spend the harsh winters there. A cool breeze wafted in off Mare Dalden, drawing a contented sigh from the halfling. Though June had already passed its midpoint, this was the first hot day of the short season, and Regis was determined to make the most of it. For the first time in over a year he had been out before noon, and he planned to stay in this spot, stripped of his clothes, letting the sun sink its warmth into every inch of his body until the last red glow of sunset. An angry shout out on the lake caught his attention. He lifted his head and half-opened one heavy eyelid. The first thing he noticed, to his complete satisfaction, was that his belly had grown considerably over the winter, and, from this angle, laying flat on his back, he could see only the tips of his toes. Halfway across the water, Four boats, two from Termalane and two from Targos, jockeyed for position, running past each other with sudden tacks and turns, their sailors cursing and spitting at the boats that flew the flag of the other city. For the last four and a half years, since the Battle of Bryn Shander, the two cities had virtually been at war. Though their battles were more often fought with words and fists than weapons, more than one ship had been rammed or driven into rocks or up to beach in shallow waters. Regis shrugged helplessly and dropped his head back to his folded waistcoat. Nothing had changed much around Ten Towns in the last few years. Regis and some of the other spokesmen had entertained high hopes of a united community, despite the heated argument after the battle between Kemp of Targos and Argawal of Termalane over the drow. Even on the banks of the lake across the way, the period of goodwill was short-lived among the long-standing rivals. The truce between Caer Dinevil and Caer Koenig had lasted only until the first time one of Caer Dinevil's boats landed a valuable and rare five-footer on the stretch of Lac Dinesher that Caer Koenig had relinquished to her as compensation for the water she lost to East Haven's expanding fleet. Furthermore, Goodmead and Dugan's Hole, the normally unassuming and fiercely independent towns on the southernmost lake, Redwaters, had boldly demanded compensation from Brinchander and Termalane. They had suffered staggering casualties in the Battle of Bryn Shander Slopes, though they'd never even considered the affair their business, 
They reasoned that the two towns which had gained the most from the united effort should pay the most. The northern cities, of course, balked at that demand. And so the lesson of the benefits of unification had gone unheeded. The ten communities remained as divided as ever before. In truth, the town which had benefited the most from the battle was Lonelywood. The population of ten towns as a whole had remained fairly constant. Many fortune hunters or hiding scandals continued to filter into the region, but an equal number were killed or grew disenchanted with the brutal conditions and returned to the more hospitable south. Lonelywood, though, had grown considerably. Mayor Dolden, with its constant yield of knucklehead, remained the most profitable of the lakes, and with the fighting between Tourmaline and Targos, and Bremen precariously perched on the banks of the unpredictable and often flooding Shergarn River, Lonelywood appeared to be the most appealing of the four towns. The people of the small community had even launched a campaign to draw newcomers, citing Lonelywood as the home of the halfling hero, and the only place with shade trees within a hundred miles. Regis had given up his position as spokesman shortly after the battle, a choice mutually arrived at by himself and the townsfolk. With Lonelywood growing into greater prominence and shaking off its reputation as a melting pot of rogues, the town needed a more aggressive person to sit on the council, and Regis simply didn't want to be bothered with the responsibility anymore. Of course, Regis had found a way to turn his fame into profit. Every new settler in the town had to pay out a share of his first catches in return for the right to fly Lonelywood's flag, and Regis had persuaded the new spokesman and the other leaders of the town that, since his name had been used to help bring in new settlers, he should be in for a cut of the portion of these fees. The halfling wore a broad smile whenever he considered his good fortune. He spent his days in peace, coming and going at his leisure, mostly just lying against the moss of his favorite tree, putting a line in the water once and letting the day pass him by. His life had taken a comfortable turn, though the only work he ever did was carving scrimshaw. His crafted pieces carried ten times their old value, the price partially inflated by the halfling's small degree of fame, but more so because he persuaded some connoisseurs who were visiting Bryn Shander that his unique style and cut gave his scrimshaw a special artistic and aesthetic worth. Regis patted the ruby pendant that rested on his bare chest. It seemed that he could persuade almost anyone of almost anything these days. The hammer clanged down on the glowing metal. Sparks leapt off the anvil platform in a fiery arc, then died in the dimness of the stone chamber. The heavy hammer swung again and again, guided effortlessly by a huge muscled arm. The smith wore only a pair of pants and a leather apron tied about his waist in the small, hot chamber. Black lines of soot had settled in the muscular grooves across his broad shoulders and chest, and he glistened with sweat in the orange glow of the forge. His movements were marked with such rhythmic, tireless ease that they seemed almost preternatural, as though he were the god who had forged the world in the days before mortal men. An approving grin spread across his face when he felt the rigidity of the iron finally give a bit under the force of his blows. Never before had he felt such strength in the metal. It tested him to the limits of his own resilience, and he felt a shiver as alluring as the thrill of battle when he had at last proven himself the stronger. Brunner will be pleased, he thought to himself. Wolfgar stopped for a moment and considered the implications of his thoughts smiling in spite of himself as he remembered his first days in the minds of the dwarves. What a stubborn, angry youth he had been then, 
cheated out of his right to die on the field of honor by a grumbling dwarf who justified unasked-for compassion by labeling it good business. This was his fifth and final spring indentured to the dwarves in tunnels that kept his seven-foot frame continually hunched. He longed for the freedom of the open tundra, where he could stretch his arms up high to the warmth of the sun or to the intangible pull of the moon, or lie flat on his back with his legs unbent, the ceaseless wind tickling him with its chill bite and the crystalline stars filling his mind with mystical visions of unknown horizons. And yet, for all of these inconveniences, Wolfgar had to admit that he would miss the hot drafts and constant clatter of the dwarven halls. He clung to the brutal code of his people, which defined capture as disgrace during the first year of his servitude, reciting the Song of Tempos as a litany of strength against the insinuation of weakness in the company of the soft, civilized Southerners. Yet Brunner was as solid as the metal he pounded. The dwarf openly professed no love for battle, but he swung his notched axe with deadly accuracy and shrugged off blows that would fell an ogre. The dwarf had been an enigma to Wolfgar in the early days of their relationship. The young barbarian was compelled to grant Brunner a degree of respect, for Brunner had bested him on the field of honor. Even then, with the battle lines firmly defining the two as enemies, Wolfgar had recognized a genuine and deeply rooted affection in the eyes of the dwarf that had confused him. He and his people had come to pillage ten towns, yet Brunner's underlying attitude seemed more the concern of a stern father than the callous perspective of a slave master. Wolfgar always remembered his rank in the mines, however, for Brunner was often gruff and insulting, working Wolfgar at menial, sometimes degrading tasks. Wolfgar's anger had dissipated over the long months. He came to accept his penance with stoicism, heeding Brunner's commands without question or complaint. Gradually, conditions had improved. Brunner had taught him to work the forge, and later to craft the metal into fine weapons and tools. And finally, on a day that Wolfgar would never forget, he'd been given his own forge and anvil, where he could work in solitude and without supervision. Though Brunner often stuck his head in to grumble over an inexact strike or to spout out a few pointers. More than the degree of freedom, though, the small workshop had restored Wolfgar's pride. Since the first time he lifted the smithy hammer he called his own, the methodical stoicism of a servant had been replaced by the eagerness and meticulous devotion of a true craftsman. The barbarian found himself fretting over the smallest burr, sometimes reworking an entire piece to correct a slight imperfection. Wolfgar was pleased about this change in his perspective, viewing it as an attribute that might serve him well in the future, though he didn't as yet understand how. Brunner called it character. The work paid dividends physically as well. Chopping stone and pounding metal had corded the barbarian's muscles, redefining the gangly frame of his youth into a hardened girth of an unrivaled strength, and he possessed great stamina, for the tempo of the tireless dwarves had strengthened his heart and stretched his lungs to new limits. Wolfgar bit his lip in shame, as he vividly remembered his first conscious thought after the Battle of Bryn Shander. He had vowed to pay Brunner back in blood as soon as he'd fulfilled the terms of his indenture. He understood now, to his own amazement, that he had become a better man under the tutelage of Brunner Battlehammer, and the mere thought of raising a weapon against the dwarf sickened him. He turned his sudden emotion into motion, slamming his hammer against the iron, flattening its incredibly hard head more and more into the semblance of a blade. This piece would make a fine sword. Brunner would be pleased. <laughs>